<laughs> Hi, guys. So, you guys are about to listen to an episode. And there might be, you know, a misusage of a certain word. I would like to preface this with we are Swedes and English is our second language. This is true. So sometimes, you know, we use words in English that we might not like have control. We don't know what they mean. Okay. We just don't know what they mean. We might know sort of what they mean, but not entirely. So it might have happened. I don't know. Someone someone during this podcast, I don't know who, might have used a word incorrectly on very, very many occasions. What's the word, Linnea? It's it's vicinity. <laughs> so apparently vicinity means near or like close to a premise, a premises. I don't even know what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> like the premises. <laughs> and I used it as if it meant the premises. Uh, or the building. So when you guys hear the word vicinity on this pod, understand that vicinity means the premise. Sis. <laughs> you're doing great, baby. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm it's so difficult. <laughs> Just 10 Hail Marys and you're, you're clear. <laughs> okay, the premises. It means that the building, the premises. So when we're saying there was something happening at the premises, in the premises, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when we say that something is happening in the vicinity... We mean the premises, the building. It's happening in the building, okay? When you say we, who do you mean? Me. <laughs> You're doing a great job, honey, boo-boo. I fucked up, guys. <laughs> and I'm fucking up this apology and explanation as well by interchangeably using the words. <laughs> Anyways, okay, vicinity means premises, building, inside the building. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you guys understand what our story that's about to be told. It's a good story. You're going to enjoy it. Yeah, but I do fuck it up. Okay, thank you so much. We're going to start the show now. Bye. Bye. <laughs> good morning, good evening, and good night. Welcome to Arsenic Soap. If this is your first time here, it's a pleasure to meet you. If you're a good old regular, then welcome back. My name is Johanna. And my name is Linnea. Hi, guys. Arsenic Soap is a podcast that discusses the six grand M's. And the six grand M's are murder, mystery, monsters, magic, morbidity, and the messed up. So as you can hear, we have a smorgasbord waiting for you guys, since we couldn't just decide on one morbid topic. That's right. And we'll make sure you get a weekly dose of all that little creepy, eerie, and scary stuff that will keep you awake an extra few minutes every night. That's right. So thank you for listening in and wanting to follow us on this journey. We're just getting started. When churchyards yawn, and hell itself gives up contagion to this world. I'm not crazy. Now, easy, Batman. Just relax. I'm a doctor. Hello, everyone, and hello from the other side to you, Joanna. And hello from the other side to you, Linnea. How are you doing today? I'm pretty okay. You good? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm good, actually. Uh, pretty excited for our second episode, right? I am nervous as balls. Right. Um, I think we need to inform our audience that we know that the sound quality in this episode is going to be pretty shite. Uh, we have ordered another microphone and currently we're kind of, we're like make out close to each other. And it's intimate and cozy. 
Yeah, but it's a little bit too intimate. It's almost like we can't keep eye contact. Oh, yeah, because if the eye contact is involved, then we're on another level. And we're gently touching right now. Mm-hmm. Our elbows are just like... Grazing mm, each other. Grazing. We're sharing this little mic, and you'll definitely hear that. Yeah. So when we tell our stories, this week is going to be a little bit different from last week. Because this week we have one case each. So it's more of a narration from both of our sides. Exactly. Or in, and or storytelling. And so the person who's not storytelling it sort of gets a little too far away from the mic. So it sounds a little bit like they're in the hallway while we're in the living room. <laughs> hey guys, let me in. So in the reality, we're actually touching all the time. We're basically sitting in each other's laps, just legs cradled together. Cozy, Knotted warm. like uh, the limbs. A little touch of the earlobe. And I don't know why the earlobe was the first. Oh, that just Especially creepy. when I did a reference to your episode on the Catherine wheel and you just totally missed it. I, I think I panicked. <laughs> Uh, and just like blocked off everything because I was trying to like think of a body part. Our limbs braided. And I was like, intimately. Earlobe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, this is going to be our making progress episode. We're really excited though because today we'll actually be discussing our hometowns. Yes. Uh, we figured that it's it's good to kind of start off early with some true crime. We have so many cases we want to discuss with you guys. Also, when it's our hometown, it's a little bit of us. Yeah. And so you guys get to know us, I think. And I think it's only reasonable. I mean, we have listened to My Favorite Murder. Who hasn't? Even people who haven't listened to it have listened to it. Yeah. Uh, It was one of our first, obviously, our first true crime fix. So I think it's only appropriate that we do our hometowns. Mm -hmm. And these aren't necessarily hometown murders, but hometown brutal crime incidents. Yeah. And that have affected us. And this is going to be a little bit heavy. You know, because braiding limbs and breaking legs and stuff wasn't really heavy enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> so just as we are diving into these stories, we want you to know that, you know, you're listening to a podcast about nasty shit. There's going to be a lot of bad juju. Well, in- you're really pulling down. <laughs> you're making me so sad. If you're listening to this podcast, this is what you're here for. Yeah. You're not here for, I was going to say Disney references, but that's totally what I'm here for. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're not going to talk about Reshlin or Macrobay. Wait, what's it called? What? You know that when you start like... Are you talking about Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> what the f- can you stop bringing up Bitcoin every fucking moment you get? <laughs> I was thinking of like macrame or what it's called. Macrame. Macrame. I was I was actually really close to the word and you were just bitchy. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yes, this is what we're talking about. So, but just so you know, if you if you came here expecting something lighthearted, like Victorian shit, um, this is not the episode. This is not that. the episode. This is kind of heavy. And these are also cases that they happen in our presence. So that obviously makes these a little bit more personal and we kind of have, you know, an emotional connection to them. Yeah. I mean, it, it happened in our hometown. But with that being said, I think, uh, are you ready to talk I'm, about your case? Yeah, I'm ready to roll. I was going to say rock and roll, but I think I'm only ready to roll. Okay. Uh, I'm ready to rock, so yeah. let's do this. Let's do So I guess I'm first. You are. I'm telling my hometown 
crime, I think we can call it. It is sort of a murder because you know this case very well. I do. So it's sort of nerve-wracking because I want to get all the details correct and I'm afraid to look up and then see the the face of judgment. I promise I will not judge. Her shirt was actually blue. <laughs> yeah, if you if you read the book. <laughs> I've not read any books. <laughs> but okay, so this is my hometown case. And it's been really difficult researching for this case, partly because there is a lot of controversy behind it. And there are so many things happening in a very short amount of time and so many players. And you want to do everything as understandable as possible. So I've chosen to do it in a like a chronological order, Great. very like um, minute by minute thing. Mm. And there are also many reports out there that differ and they like change maybe well, like, uh, there was a fire alarm. Was it working? Wasn't it working? We don't know. And then there is also the emotional aspect, which I think you have as well for your hometown. It's difficult to see it. You can see it objectively, but it's still, it's when you're listening to victim impact statements and so on, it tears you up. And what I'm going to talk about is the Gothenburg discotheque fire of 1998 which is one of the greatest catastrophes in modern Swedish time. And discotheque, oh, I don't think that word is even used anymore. It's more... It is It is a word. Because it sounds like something from the 70s. Yeah, but discotheque is definitely... A dance hall, I think, uh, is what we can call it. And the fire occurred on the night between Thursday the 29th and Friday the 30th of October 1998. And the place was a vicinity in Backehissingen in Gothenburg, a place which I've passed on numerous occasions. And 63 kids between the ages of 12 and 25 died and 214 were injured. That's so many people. It's a lot. And the vast majority of them had various ethnic minority backgrounds, which led to a lot of speculation later on. There were a lot of things that led up to what happened. And in the end, it was just a perfect shitstorm of everything that could go wrong going wrong. And one of these things was the actual building. And the vicinity we'll be talking about today is located on Herkulesgatan. It? Swedish. Herkulesgatan. It? <laughs> <laughs> it was a part of a larger industrial area that was built during the 1940s. And the building was a two floor building with one between floor planes. So you had one ground floor, then a stairs up, and then there's like this landing spot that was oh, only okay. like, yeah, a few meters, okay, square meters, and then there was the second floor. Mm. In 1990, a building permit was accepted to rebuild the area into a gathering hall because it had just been a, like a distral workspace before mm. that. And so gathering hall, party room, it wasn't really an official discotheque. But like a space you can rent. Yeah, exactly. It was a space you could rent and have parties and just like meetings and stuff. And uh, the emergency exits consisted of two doors that led each to a stairwell. So the entire building was, it was a box. It was a long rectangle. So if you're looking at the floor plan from above, on the left side, there was a staircase, which was the emergency staircase. And on the right side, there was the other emergency staircase. And the door opening for each exit to the stairwell wasn't even a meter wide. It was 90 centimeters, which is about 2.6 feet wide. Wow. And the stairway itself was 1.4 meters wide, which is 4.6 feet. So it's tight already as it is. And one of the staircases was created to be an emergency exit, whilst the other served as the main staircase. But both were marked as emergency exits. Mm. The floor plan is, like I said, it's like one big box. So on the left, you have the emergency, and that's where they had the DJ table. And on the right side, there were uh, rooms on both sides of the structure. So if you look at it, it looks like a bottle and then the neck goes into like a hallway and this hallway leads to the staircase, the entrance staircase. Got it, got it. 
According to regulations at the time, the party room was only approved for 150 people. And this is due to the fact that the doors weren't wide enough for more people. If the door openings had been 1.2 meters wide, which is 3.9 feet, then 360 people would have been allowed to be there. However, this is where it's like, you read different things. Uh, Some people say that, okay, so they were aware of the fact that you weren't allowed to have that many people in there. And some say that something went lost in communication when they were doing the renovations. So I don't know exactly what happened there. The premises did meet the fire safety requirements though, provided that no more than 150 people were there so everything other than that was fine and there were two fire safety inspections in 1995 and 1997 and there were very very few remarks and those remarks were looked into and corrected immediately on both occasions so like i said 150 people were allowed in the vicinity do you know how many people were there that night how many 375 were in the building at the time of the fire that is too many people that is a ridiculous amount of people okay so this brings us to the night the vicinity, which was owned by the Macedonian Association, was rented out a week before the fire, and the organizers of the party claimed that it was a private birthday party, when in reality it was a party to celebrate Halloween. The organizers were also very young, around 20 years old. They just wanted to have a party to celebrate Halloween without disturbing the neighbors or getting complaints. And they had originally thought that about 150 people would be in, in attendance. And when they later, that evening, just around when the fire started, they were shocked at how many people were there. At that moment, before anything happened, they felt that they'd, like, they'd thrown a successful party, you know? So at around 6 p.m. on the night of October 29th, 1998, the organizers met up to prepare for the party. And as they were preparing and decorating, they realized that they needed more space. So they took a tip, which they'd gotten from the Macedonian Association, who'd show them how to put away the chairs in the emergency staircase to get more room. Do you know how many chairs they put in the staircase? A lot. 92. Yeah. So 92 chairs were stacked in the vicinity's emergency staircase, and the barricade was so extreme that there was just no way of getting through to that staircase. So that led to there only being one entrance and one exit to the entire building. Right inside, and this is another thing that just makes it impossible to get out. Right inside, in front of the main entrance, they placed a table which acted as a ticket table where you gave your ticket. This table minimized the doorway by, this is also varying, about 60 centimeters, which is almost two feet. So if you remember, the doorway we began with was only 90 centimeters, 4.6 feet. So the guests were almost squeezing through the door as it was. Mm. And during the week building up to the night, flyers had been sent out to students and had been distributed about town. So a lot of kids were going to show up that night. When you listen to accounts from survivors, they explain this as the night. This was the party. And this was the first party for a lot of them. How old were the? were the guests they were between 12 and 20 well the youngest one was 12 so these were when you look at who the survivors there were about 16 to 17 were like and they were just so excited and they really planned for this party so at 9 p.m the doors to the party were opened and the first guests arrived and the number of people at the party grew steadily during the night round opening there were already 50 people there and at 10 15 there were 150 people there at 11, it was tight and it was stuffy in that party room. And it was described as really, really hot. And according to the police, uh, about a half hour later, when the fire broke out, there were 398 people at the party. Oh my God. And 372 of them were inside the vicinity at the time of the fire. And so many kids. That's an entire school. At about 11 p.m., a fire started in the pile of chairs and tables standing inside the emergency staircase. 
the emergency staircase was right outside the party room, but there was a thick door between them. Oh. So the people inside the party couldn't see the fire. This is one of the reasons this became such a deadly tragedy because the fire could grow without anyone noticing it. Yeah. And between 11.25 and 11.30, the first signs of a fire had developed. People started experiencing a nasty smoke and thick smell. However, this was quickly dismissed since at the party there was, of course, a smoke machine. And you have to remember, this is a sweaty, hot, loud, boisterous room right now. It's stuffy and dark and you're, you know, you're bumping into people and laughing and there's music and you're running to the, off to the bathroom, you know, yes. with your friends to gossip about the cute boy at the party, etc. And the last thing you'd imagine is that in a few minutes, this room will be melting. And at that, there are people smoking close to the doors. You know, there's almost no air in this room. Exactly. And you couldn't even reach the windows because they're about two meters up on the wall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it's just, there were smells. I mean, and it's going to be nasty air anyway. At 11.30 p.m., after guests had started complaining to the DJs about a smoke smell, a DJ inspected the door which led to the emergency staircase, which stood right next to the DJ table. The doorknob immediately burnt his hand, and the door flew open, and the room filled with black smoke. At this moment, the music was shut off in the middle of Brandy's The Boy's Mine. I know, that sort of, like, tore my heart. <laughs> Uh, the room fell silent, and the DJs warned and urged partygoers to leave the room in a calm and orderly fashion. And many of the partygoers did leave the vicinity at that time, but people in the far back hadn't seen the smoke, and people couldn't see any fire at all, and the room was already, it was really, really hot and smoky from the machine. A survivor explains that someone yelled about there being some fire, and she saw smoke, but she thought it was, like, from a speaker or something. I mean, you didn't even worry. Mm. And another survivor describes how she calmly, you know, started moseying out, you know, when you hear a fire alarm or anything. Because there's so many fire drills on these kinds of places. Exactly. And you're start looking for your friends. They're like, oh my God, you know, let's just do this, you know, and they're getting her jackets. And then her friend just like sort of took her and said, we have to get out of here right now. Mm. And that's probably what saved her. Yeah. And the thing is that after the warning, someone from the partygoers went up on stage and started to rap. This was not good because it prompted some who were heading towards the exit to return back into the party room. Because obviously you don't think that there is any danger if someone goes on stage. Of course. And more than half of the people in the room didn't listen to the warning and they stayed until it was too late. For the people who were not in the vicinity of the scene, the first sign of anything bad happening only came when people started rushing towards the exit and the smoke development inside the room was already quite extensive. And the thing is, even people who left early from the vicinity, when it was like pretty calm, had trouble getting out due to the crowding that built up. However, this wasn't due to the bottleneck. It also had to do with the fact that the bouncers who stood by the entrance, they didn't get what was happening. Mm-hmm. So they wanted more people to come in. Yeah. Uh, so they took time to let people in. And then let some out, let more in, let some out. This is when a survivor describes how the room had now filled with that black smoke. There was an explosion and just all hell broke loose. You see, the door between the staircase and the party room had flown open after a few minutes of the gas building in the hallway. And when that poisonous gas mixed with oxygen, the room just erupted into an inferno. Yeah, it's a smoke explosion. Yeah, exactly. And the door to that staircase was supposed to automatically close when there was a fire, but the door didn't close and let just the fire escape into the party room full of hundreds of kids Mm -hmm. at 11 42 p.m about 10 to 20 minutes after the fire had been ignited the first sos call came in it took 20 seconds to connect with the fire station uh in sweden we call it uh our 911 is 112 
However, the two 112 responders found it difficult to hear what the street address was and what was actually happening because there was a bunch of noise and there were kids screaming and all the commotion. And during the next three minutes, an additional 14 emergency calls were received. The thing is that already after these few minutes, the gases had become so poisonous that people were already starting to lose consciousness. So now, smoke and flames had begun to thrust through the door and the fire had spread over the dance floor into other parts of the building. After the fire had spread to the dance floor, the floor ignited and the room was burning down. To facilitate the evacuation, the ticket table was removed so that the full size of the door could be used. But remember, it's still only 1.2 meters, 4.6 feet. Survivors described the situation as crowded and that the pressure from behind made certain people fall and get pinned to the floor. And when this happened, people started piling into heaps. After about 150 people had made it safely outside, somehow the table glided in front of the door and blocked the only way out of the burning building. Can you imagine how you sort of feel that it's going further and something it just comes to a complete stop? Mm. And in front of this table, a pile of about 20 people stacked on top of each other made it completely impossible to escape. And since the hallway was built like a bottleneck, people were being smashed against the walls and pushed into the many side rooms, like I said, because there was like a tiny office and then a tiny bar and then a coat room. A survivor, Hosan, who was 13 at the time and who'd snuck out and not told her parents that she was going to the party, explains how the pressure to get out was so intense that she started crawling, but then people started to fall on her and she couldn't get up. She describes how a boy who'd fallen on top of her had asked her almost casually what her name was, and she was just so shocked that she didn't even remember her name. And she recalls how she couldn't feel anything but extreme pressure and force on her body. She didn't even feel the pain of her face and body melting or burning. She just remembered how heavy it was. And Hosan was later in a coma for nine weeks. And she had, after the fight, she's had about 30 operations. Um, So you can pretty much understand how insane her injuries were. She didn't even feel it. It was the pressure. People on the outside tried pulling people out of the pile, but when one person was pulled out, he or she was quickly replaced by another due to the immense pressure from people pushing behind. This pile of people wasn't cleared up until about midnight when medical personnel and firefighters were on location. Do you remember when the fire started? Yeah. Yeah, half an hour. There were, like, people piling up them. And it's like a human plug. Exactly. These are kids as well. I mean, it's just... Oh. And the absolute panic sent people to start breaking windows to get out. And these were really, really high windows. They were 2.2 meters off the floor, which is about 7.2 feet. Even if they got to the window, the drop to the ground on the other side was 5 to 6 meters. Oh, that'll kill you a lot. Yeah, that's 16 to 19 feet. And the numbers here vary of the survivors, but there were at least 229 who went out through the entrance door, while at least 37 left through those windows. At 11.45 p.m., the nearest fire station was sent out, and they were on location four minutes later. However, 20 seconds before arrival, the firefighters, who'd only thought they were there to inspect the building, uh, started seeing smoke and realized that something terrible was happening, and this was beyond anything they were prepared for. So the team requested a fire master at 11.49 p.m. And during that time, they sent in a request for more ambulances and firefighters as well. When the firefighters arrived on scene, about 100 people were still in the burning vicinity. And life-saving measures started immediately. Thing is that the only entrance into the vicinity was plugged by bodies. Until they could be moved, no one could be saved on the inside. However, luckily they found the windows and raised ladders to those windows, and luckily they could climb out and also climb in and get the people who had passed out and send them out that way. 
And according to Gothenburg safety and fire regulations, if there were to be a fire in a recreational vicinity, two large fire stations and extra vehicles and at least two ambulances were to automatically be called to the spot. However, this did not happen due to, as previously mentioned, the 112 operators didn't realize that the vicinity was actually on fire. The fact that there was a fire wasn't either heard or wasn't conveyed clearly due to the panic. So the first police uh, were on location 11.49 p.m., just a few moments before the firefighters arrived then, and about five minutes after the first call. And there's so many people in need of help. There's so many people. And the police reported that kids were jumping and just falling from windows. And already at 11.50, they had 12 patrols on location. And the first task was to block off the area. It wasn't to help people. It was to get people out of the way. This was chosen as a first action because it was crucial to like get people out of the way because there, there were already relatives there and onlookers. And they just flowed into the area, hindering emergency service to get in or out of the location. The first ambulances were on location at 11.50 p.m. Two minutes after arriving, the ambulances called for more ambulances. First responders described the scene as completely unreal. It was just pure chaos. Injured were lying everywhere. People were pulling on the firefighters for help and to save their friends who were still stuck inside. Kids were pushing and they were fighting and they were just terrified. About an hour after the first ambulance had arrived, there were in total 15 ambulances on location. And there weren't that many in the early stages due to the miscommunication to the operator. Here, uh, they used a method called the load and go. It's a term that they use within the emergency personnel, which is you load a person, you send them. You load one and send them. You load them and send them because the injuries were so extended. And there were just so many. And the medical assistance was also hampered by the fact that some people began behaving extremely violently. Ambulance nurses were being kicked and punched. Firefighters and police officers were subjected to similar violence. And prior to this fire, Swedish ambulance and healthcare personnel had largely not been subjected to this sort of threat and violence at all. What do you think that's about? That's the thing, that most of these kids um, have ethnic minority backgrounds and have been treated badly by the police before. Mm. And I think it just became a perfect shitstorm then. First of all, there's panic. And then they probably felt really manhandled by the police and they weren't trustworthy of the police either. And the, the police probably didn't trust them either. It went both ways. I think also... So I heard this one account, for example, from this young teenage boy whose brother was still inside the building. He wouldn't get out. And the thing about teenagers is that authority is not as listened to, I guess. You don't want to, you want to rebel against them. Yeah, an adult will get instructions from police officers and they will follow. And teenagers just aren't like that. They don't see that authority in front of them and they don't care. So he basically was told to get out of the way because they had to use the area where he was. And he kept wanting to go inside because his brother was still there. And by this point, they had already found his brother dead. Mm. And when he lets him know that his brother is dead, he punches him in the face. Uh, His friends quickly pry him off of the fire personnel who has told him this. But it's just, you know, it's sheer emotional shock and horror and trauma just in the making and teenagers on that these aren't adults these are kids they don't they're just ruled by emotion and hormones and everything and just put panic on that and shock and terror and your your family your brother he just saw the messenger giving him the worst message he could ever think of receiving he just wanted to silence him yeah i'm gonna talk more about the interaction between personnel and the kids Um, But since this had never happened before, this sort of violence, there was no action plan for how to act in a situation like this. And it was just absolute chaos. And aside from the ambulances who transported the worst cases, the mildly wounded were shuttled by buses, cars, and taxis between the location and the hospital. 
pretty much just picking up then dropping off one kid after the other. At 12.02, the fire masters sent out the message, bring everything you can. However, despite the alarm, resources weren't sent until 10 minutes later. Station after station began arriving on location then, and in total there were 55 firefighters on location. 30 minutes after this, the life-saving effort realized and stated that no one left in the building could be saved. By then, though, 60 to 70 people had been pulled out and saved from the vicinity by firefighters. But just that realization that everyone left, there's no chance. Yeah. And then shortly after 1 a.m., the first TV team was on location. The telegram office of the newspaper sent out a short message at 1.21, stating that some 20 people had already died in the fire. And the first message to the public was through radio and TV, and it was at 1.55. It's not long. I mean, it's such a short amount of time. The thing is that only a few hours after having survived and seen people burned alive, seeing friends vanished into throngs, and screaming, panicking kids, shocked survivors were being interviewed. That is not cool. Mm-mm. And these terrified and traumatized kid survivors, not only were they in shock, but they told very negative things about how the police and rescue personnel was acting. And among these claims, there was information that the rescue personnel had acted very passively, which I have a really difficult time imagining that someone would yeah. act passively during this time, and that the police had prevented the partygoers from, uh, from helping with the rescue work. The reason why the police prevent the young people from entering the building was that it was dangerous. Oh, yeah, you can't go in. Yeah, you can't go in. But I know that there were a lot of kids who helped bring people out. Yeah, and that's... I can understand why they would just say, you can't do that. Yeah. Because next time you might you might not either get out. Yeah. And the thing is also that there was already overcrowding and they couldn't have kids running in and out like that. And deservingly, the mass media received criticism for allowing people who were in so much shock to not only be subjected to interviews so close to trauma, but also allowing them to express such extreme negative opinions about the police and rescue personnel when they didn't really understand the situation or what was happening. It's it's unethical. It's uneth- Yeah, exactly. And it's these, unethical journalism. Yeah, and the thing is that these claims, that's what spread throughout the world first and foremost, that personnel acted badly. Mm. And at 2.12 a.m., the last injured was sent to the hospital after they'd found him or her at a bus stop. I don't know more about the story there, but I can just imagine that you sort of, I want to go home. Yeah. You just don't know what's happening or anything. You're just empty. And 20 minutes later after that, the fire was extinguished. And thereafter, the police took over the investigation. It was very quick. They were right on scene like that. And in total, 63 kids died. 214 were injured in the fire. Of the deceased, 60 died on location, and 150 of the injured were admitted to hospitals, and 74 of them were put into intensive care units. And when they later went through the rubble, they found piles of bodies, keys, shoes, just all these things kids forget, and bus cards. And do you remember that coat room? Yeah. It was only like four times three meters big, so it's about 13 times 9.8 feet. Mm. Inside, they found 24 kids. 24? 24 kids who'd gotten stuck and died in there and they were just lying in one heap these kids and the investigation then started as stated at 3 a.m just an hour after the fire had been confirmed that it had been extinguished the investigation would later be described as the swedish police's largest crime victim initiative of all time approximately 1,500 people were questioned and nearly 2,000 interrogations were carried out and every police in the area worked the case at one time or another 30 minutes later, at 3.30 a.m., the first press conference with the chief of the rescue operation was held. He stated that he believed that the fire had most likely been arson. On the evening of November 1st, all bodies had been found and the families had been notified. 
The number of deceased was decided on November 3rd after a woman's body had been found in the fire remnants. The cause of death in most of the cases was carbon monoxide poisoning. It was stated that burns also contributed in some cases. Mm. The other kinds of injuries, such as a fall, injuries were not considered severe enough to have been a contributing cause to their death. So uh, I don't think anyone who jumped from the windows died from that injury. Oh, really? Yeah. The police were put quickly under critique by the families of the deceased because they felt that it took too long to find the bodies and identify the bodies. However, the police argued that their response and work had never been so efficient, and the first victim of the fire was buried already on November 4th, three days after the accident. Already on the night of the fire, churches opened its doors at 2.30 a.m., where about 500 people streamed in. Some people slept there for days after the accident. And the following morning, the country was in a daze, and on that day, Gothenburg was declared a city in mourning. That evening, there was a memorial in Gothenburg's largest church, and the prime minister traveled to be in attendance. And this is when the rumors start. Rumors of how the fire had been started, and many believe that the fire was racially motivated. This is due to the fact that most of the kids who were at the party had ethnic minority backgrounds. Posters stating 60 invandringsungdomar har dött, nu ska 60 svenskar dö. 60 immigrant kids have died, now 60 Swedes shall die, were plastered across Gothenburg, and some hate groups even took credit for the fire. Ew. The following days, about 100 emergency call centers were created. This work continued for about two years forth. Places where the affected and victims' families and friends could meet were established. These places included the place of the, the vicinity, uh, churches and hospitals. And people donated supplies such as blankets, mattresses, and over 10,000 servings of food, drink to these areas. On the three-year anniversary, a memorial was created in the newly renovated vicinity where the fire had been. It became a vicinity where the fire department in Gothenburg, as well as Buwa, can hold meetings and educate about fire safety. What's Buwa? Next sentence. <laughs> Buwa is a non-profit organization which was created by relatives of the victims. Oh. Buwa stands for Föreningen Brandoffrens Anhöriga. Uh, association for the relatives of the fire victims. The association was quickly created after the fire, and its main goal in the beginning was to collect and care for, and also handle all the contact between the affected families of the victims, concerned ethnic groups, and the authorities, so they could get answers during the chaotic time, and just collect all the answers. Yeah, because there's also so many families, you know, back in different homelands who have no idea what's going on. Exactly, and there are a lot of languages and stuff. And everyone wanted just to know why, how, when, and, and who during the investigation. Sheila Devon, president of BUA, said, We are here to be. We are prepared to talk. We are prepared to listen. They still exist. <laughs> and now their goal is to help the kids that are now adults who were hurt and the kids that just saw it happen or were there or knew the families of the victims and everyone just connected to the accident. And as stated earlier, they used the vicinity to hold meetings and educate kids about the consequences a fire can create. In January 2000, three suspects were taken into custody by the police. And in February, a fourth was arrested. However, these boys had been suspected of starting the fire for some time. And a shock to many people was who these boys were and why they started the fire. Because it wasn't a racially motivated crime. Rather, the perpetrators themselves were immigrant boys, and three of them had previously been convicted of crimes. The perpetrators, who were then between 17 and 19 years old, had not been granted free entry to the party, so they wanted to destroy the party and started a fire. Oh my god. So during interrogations, the four boys admitted that the fire was set as revenge because they, or one of the boys, had not received entry to the party. So they wanted free to kill entry. people? No. We're getting there. 
According to testimony during the trial, the lead boy, already a week before the party, has said that if he didn't get in for free, he'd destroy the party. So after being denied, they persuaded a friend to let them in the back passage, which led directly to the emergency staircase where all the chairs stood. The fire then was created with some ripped paper and some liquid fire exhilarator. The boys, however, only meant to start a fire that would, like, awake the fire alarms. So they only wanted to ruin the party. They also never really considered what could actually happen. Yeah, because they're kids. Yeah, and they didn't know that that was one of the only ways out. They just thought, okay, well, we'll start the fire alarms. That's it. And during their trials, the boys stood alone. No family stood with them, which is also really heartbreaking. Yeah. No one was there for them. All boys were charged and found guilty of aggravated arson. And the fire starter was sentenced by the district court in 2000 to eight years imprisonment. Two others were sentenced to six years in prison, while the fourth, a minor at the time, received three years in a juvenile care facility. Both the defendants and the prosecution appealed the sentences. The Court of Appeals upheld two of the verdicts, but the two verdicts of six years imprisonment were raised to seven years instead. On February 4th, 1999, the police and the prosecutor told relatives that suspected crimes would be served to the four party organizers as well. They were suspicious of gross manslaughter and as well as causing bodily injury. The organizers were suspected to have been negligent by allowing too many people to stay in the party room and by not having kept the emergency exit free from obstacles. And on July 15, 1999, the prosecutor announced that no preliminary investigation would be initiated against the party organizers because they had not applied for the necessary permission to organize the event. So just to summarize, there were six aspects that led to this disaster. There are too many people. The fire spread so fast, and the fire could burn pretty long before anyone found it. There was only one exit, and the only exit left was just too small, and there was panic. The thing is that whether the boys had started the fire or there had just been a quote-unquote natural fire, this would have happened. So I don't think that the people who should get the blame got the blame. I think that it's the uh, Macedonia Association, in that case, that did not have a building that was ready to take on a fire. In 2008, on the 10th anniversary of the fire, a memorial in blank, polished blue granite was uncovered with all the names of the dead and the age engraved in gold. The 2-meter high and 10-meter long, slightly curved monument stands in front of the vicinity and is designed by Klaus Hocke. Hocke chose blue granite to avoid the monument from being too dark. And the memorial also includes a raised, polished stone in front of the memorial intended for flowers and candles. And I wanted to end on a quote from one of the victim's fathers, Lars Nilsson, who is the father of 17-year-old Sophia who died that night. And sometimes I think about Sophia's final moments in life. She was found near the exit where bodies laid in piles one on top of the other. It must have been so terrifying for her. It hurts to think about it and the terror she must have felt. Sophia had her entire life before her. I often think of who she would have been. To not get to be with her through her life journey is a wound that will never heal. Wow, that is so heavy. Yeah. You're sort of dazed after it. There's so many kids and it just could have been avoided in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah, if one aspect had been different, maybe this would never have happened. Or at least not as many deaths. This was a case that rocked this entire country. I don't know if you've had that, but we've had a lot of firemen and women coming by our school to kind of talk to us about fire safety throughout my school years. And this is always something that they bring up because you cannot expect teenagers to know these things or to know the proper way to handle escaping a fire or even to consider that this might be a problem if they throw a party. Yeah, It's just, you can really tell how it has affected the way uh, Swedish firefighters are educated. Yeah. 
like you said, the whole thing about was there a fire alarm? Was there not a fire alarm? Mm -hmm. According to all the witness statements that I heard and seen, it seems like there was never like an actual sound alarm going off. Yeah, exactly. That indicated that this was real. But yeah, then there's the case of, uh, you know, you go through fire drills an awful lot when you're a kid in school and... You block it out. You block it out because you know that it's not real. And not even the teachers leave. I mean, they're, yeah, 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 like that. mm. It's also just such a fucking terrifying death. But I, I had like a closing comment, I guess, concerning how it affects the community. So when something like this happens in a community, it changes the fibers of that community. Even if you're not there to witness it, it's still very tangible because it lives on in every person of that community. And in some ways, it affects the energy of that area. Before I knew that that was the memorial I saw, the granite piece, before I knew it was like for this accident, I thought it was art. And it was just, there was a sadness to it and a sadness to the area. And the way it overlooks one of the busiest and the most heavily trafficked areas in Gothenburg is very heartbreaking because it's overlooked and very quickly becomes a part of the peripheral. But when I understood that that was the memorial, it changed my perception of the entire area because kids had died there. I wasn't there, my parents weren't there, my friends weren't there, but our community was there. And it's scary and also a bit beautiful that the pain and sadness of a community seeps through the generations and lingers in the people that weren't even there. But it's their home, it's their community, and therefore the pain it remains and hopefully it's never forgotten through the generations. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. I I remember this. And it's actually, this is one of my earliest memories. And I've told you about this memory before. This was in 98 in the fall. So I was I was three years old. And I had watched the news with my parents or basically my parents had watched the news and I was just there. And my mom used to cover my eyes when something scary came on and they were reporting on this incident. And I remember both of my parents being just heartbroken to hear the news. I obviously being a murder, you know, in the making. Three years old. Three years old. Was so curious to see what had happened and why I couldn't watch. And my little brain just couldn't comprehend what happened. Because I knew the fire hurt and that it was dangerous, but I couldn't fathom what it meant to be in a building that's on fire. So later that night, I woke up from a nightmare and I came into my mom's room and I, I woke her up and I said, Mommy, I'm thinking about the people who didn't make it out. And my mom was just so sad. Yeah. Because you have, you know, such an innocent person just not being able to comprehend this awful, awful incident that has just happened but yeah i I remember it yeah i remember it which is rare for people of my generation since we were so small exactly but i mean sweden is we have nine million people living in our country almost 10 and we're not near the u.s but you can say that sweden is sort of a state because in some ways the people in gothenburg they know what's happening in the north yeah and you know what's happening in the south and like you have I don't know, there's an openness and you know everything that's happening. A lot of people were were very much alike, even though we come from different cities and regions and stuff. And so if it happens 200 miles away, it's still very personal somehow. And it could be your friends, it could be your loved ones. Yeah, we we got family all over the country. I mean, neither you nor I live where we are from. We live in the most southern part of Sweden. I'll go into that a little bit more later. I'm from the most northern part of Sweden, but there's still this connectedness because the country isn't that big and you have relations pretty much all over the country Mm -hmm. and it's very common that 
you go to a different city or region or something for school and then you stay there and then you, your friends are spread over the entire country and yeah it wasn't just Gothenburg it was the country it was everyone yeah um so I think on that note maybe we should move on you yeah. did a great job thank you I'm so proud of you thank you it was um it was not fun researching that the thing is that i've been taught or i've grown up with the understanding that these boys had barricaded the people into the building and then lit a oh, fire wow, yeah and that's when i told my mom that i was going to do this case she said oh yeah those terrible kids that locked all those people in. yeah locked all those people in and then set fire to the place and when i realized that these boys that's not what happened even what even if what they did was not okay they were stupid teenagers all four of those boys have paid so much and so much more than what they actually did i think it's safe to say that they had no clue that this was gonna happen no you know when we were in middle school you know i i remember kids from eighth grade when i was in sixth grade and there were these like shit kids who would just like set fires in bathroom trash cans and shit like that because when you're that age and especially when you're a boy of that age you like wreaking a little bit of havoc and you know explosions are fun snowballs are fun setting fires are is fun i really don't believe that they had any perception as to what this would result in their brains weren't brains properly developed and the thing is that there was any other sort of fire the kids wouldn't have gone out anyway yeah no that's that's exactly it and uh, one of the last things that develop in the human brain is the sense of consequence it's just something that you don't have when you're that age it was just so infuriating because i was listening to the court recording and the judge was like so you had no idea that that was going to happen he was like no, I, I, I couldn't imagine that. It was how couldn't you imagine that? Yeah. Yeah. No, they just wanted to. They just wanted to fuck some shit up. Yeah. They just wanted to make it annoying, make the alarm go off, and have everyone have to go out in the cold. And the party was uh, ruined. Was ruined. Yeah. Well, I mean, ruined. That's the thing too. They weren't even trying to ruin the party. If they had emptied the entire place of people. They would have just gone back inside. They just wanted to kind of create a nuisance. Yeah. And like fuck with the organizers because they couldn't get in for free. Exactly. You know, I think that says something about the motive or like the extent of what they thought would happen. Exactly. It was just, well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make it difficult for them then if they're not going to do that for me. Yeah. But I think we need to move on uh, because this, this is almost turning into a two-parter. Yeah. I think, yeah, we, we should move on to the next case. You made good time. Well, I didn't waste any. Any trouble? No, I just handed the money over and moved the body into your station wagon. That was that. Are we starting? We are. Känner du att jag är invested nog när jag sitter uppe så här? No, I don't feel like you're invested enough. <laughs> I need you to pay more attention to me. <laughs> I, was like, I, I really just stretched that leg. Well, you sit quietly and I speak for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I feel like there's a reason why I need to kind of introduce a little bit about Swedish geography. <laughs> I know. What everyone wants. I'm so sorry, but, you know, this is difficult because people listening to this might not have the context. And I feel like the context is very important in this case I'm about to present. So what you need to know about Sweden as we dive into this is that the majority of the population lives in mainly the southern part of the country. The south is where all the major cities are, Malmo being the third largest, which is where you and I currently reside. The whole country is divided into different counties. 
Uh, all in all, there are 21 counties in all of Sweden, and then in turn, those counties are divided into towns and villages. Now, the most northern county in Sweden is called Norrbotten, and that is where yours truly originates from. The county that you and I live in currently, but neither of us is from, is the southern farthest county, and it's called Skåne. Uh, so just to paint an image of the differences between these corners of our country, Skåne has a population of 1.34 million people, while Norrbotten has a mere number of 250,000 inhabitants. And though Norrbotten is considerably less populated, the size of the county is actually almost nine times larger than Skåne. Oh. Uh, what that tells you is that where I come from, there is a hell of a lot of forest and a hell of a lot of distance between people. Plenty of village towns with just a couple of hundred people living in them. So there's a bunch of political stuff I don't feel is necessary to bring up as not to overwhelm our Swedish audience. But what you need to know is that this is a very quiet part of our country where violent crimes are incredibly rare except for the occasional beer brawl. Sometimes when I miss home, I like to go to the Swedish police's website uh, where they have sort of this news feed that reports on what the police is doing in different parts of the country, like man apprehended in Stockholm under suspicion of DUI. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote that, I almost wrote DUI. <laughs> suspected for <laughs> he's burning for pinterest <laughs> uh and i'll just read a couple coming out of school and followed by a couple from norbotten my home county and it's always the most precious thing in the world do you want to hear a little sample yeah so the past five days in school just a little sample robbery aggravated assault robbery robbery aggravated robbery suspicion of dui robbery attempted murder Robbery, robbery, aggravated assault, robbery. And I absolutely refuse to say the word robbery one more time. So here comes a few from the past five days in Norbotten. Traffic accident involving moose. Vandalization of public bathroom. Traffic accident. Traffic accident involving moose. <laughs> Shoplifting. Traffic accident involving moose. <laughs> Suspected DUI. Traffic accident involving moose. Driving with false license. Shoplifting. Traffic accident involving reindeer. Traffic accident involving moose. Police announcement. Increased stealth of taillights is becoming worrisome. <laughs> Traffic accident involving reindeer. Traffic accident involving moose. Need I go on? I can't like see how this is one guy who has like a really bad eyesight. No, no, no. It's like this is like moose are the most hazardous. It's like an elephant. Yeah. And they are slow and they are not very reactive. <laughs> uh, so the reason I felt I needed to paint this picture for you is that I want you to bear it in mind as you hear about this case so that maybe you can understand how incredibly odd it was for every single person involved when a young woman by the name of Caroline Stienval went missing on September 12th in 2008. So Caroline is this energetic, outdoorsy, down-to-earth kind of girl. At the time of her disappearance, she is 29 years old and temporarily living back home with her parents in my little hometown of Piteå. The reason for this is that she's recovering from this bad knee injury. Uh, now she's been looking for jobs for a while in the tourism trade that she can start once she gets back on her feet. And it's being a little bit tricky because at this time her boyfriend is living in the other side in the south of Sweden because of his job. So they've been going at it long distance for a while and they really want to try to find something for both of them in a place where they don't have to be as far apart from each other, which is completely understandable. Yeah, because a train ride, because we take trains in Sweden, but that would be an airplane. Oh yeah, you can't there are no trains up there so yeah because because the swedish government doesn't give a fuck about us but yeah it's a but that is then. a different discussion yeah it's a 16 hour drive it's so it's only 16 hours with a car 
Yeah, but 16 hours is still not like, let's go for dinner. <laughs> it's not really optimal dating distance when you're two adults trying to establish a life together. Now, Caroline had been a little bit secretive regarding her job searching. And I think this solely comes down to like the Swedish mentality of like, don't brag about anything that you haven't accomplished yet. Mm -hmm. Where bragging can sometimes just be relaying information that something has happened. <laughs> uh, it's, it's literally I got into a school Shh, don't talk about that don't be so proud no seriously when I applied for college at the other side of the country which I did I almost didn't want to tell my parents because if I didn't get in and my mom would be like oh honey I'm so sorry I'd be like shut the fuck up <laughs> let me face my disappointment and shame <laughs> you know because you kind of feel you feel stupid for like having thought that you could achieve something yeah that you were good enough yeah, yeah. so I think this makes sense for why she didn't really want to talk about it. Um, so Caroline's sister was, of course, really curious and trying to kind of figure out what her sister had been applying to. So when she gets a text from Caroline on September the 11th that she's going to an interview in a town up north called Kiruna, and maybe she wants to come along for the ride to keep her company, she's really excited for her. The drive is around four and a half hours, so they can get it done in an afternoon. But of course, it's a bore to drive alone for that long. So she's checking if maybe, you know, she and her sister could make it into a road trip. So the sister gets this text from Caroline the day before she's supposed to leave for the interview. And she unfortunately has to decline because she, she's trying to find a babysitter, but it's just too short notice. So she can't find one. Her sister knows that Caroline will be leaving tomorrow to make the four and a half hour drive up north to Kiruna, where she will be attending an interview to work at the well-known ice hotel of Jukkasjärvi, which is the coolest place ever. Have you ever been there? No, but just the name is like, it's just so magical. It's One more time, please. the ice hotel of Jukkasjärvi. <laughs> I went there when I was around maybe seven years old and it is magical. It's absolutely beautiful. It's like Elsa just went in there and let it go. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this, you know, it's like sleeping because you can stay there. Yeah. You can stay the night there. And it's like sleeping in this beautiful, really cold art installation and just everything, the furniture, the, the glasses, the bars, everything is made out of ice. And then they have these amazing sculptures and there's so many details. How do you sleep? You get like thermal sleeping bags and then they have like reindeer skins and pelts. But it's, it's not a comfortable sleep. Not necessarily, but it is an experience. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, I was seven when I went there, so we didn't spend the night. I don't think it's a good idea to spend the night with kids there. Yeah. But there are a lot of tourists who go there just for the experience. Well, so this is kind of Caroline's dream job and she's so excited to have gotten the chance to interview at this place. So around lunchtime on the 12th of September, she gets into her car, a blue Ford Focus, and makes a quick pit stop at her mom's workplace to try this jacket her mom had bought for her. Then she gets back into her car and starts driving. Now the interview is only on the 13th, so Caroline's plan is to make the drive to Kiruna and then stay the night at her friend's house who live in the area. But Caroline never shows up. So in the morning around 9 o'clock on the 13th, the friends call up Caroline's boyfriend. He picks up and he's really anxious to hear from Caroline because he's been trying to get in touch with her and he hasn't gotten to find out how the trip went. When the friends tell him that she never showed up, he immediately contacts the police and reports her missing. The police starts calling and calling her phone and the phone is still on, but she won't pick up. Wait, so the police are, we're gonna, we're gonna do our thing. <laughs> we're just gonna call her a bunch of times because no one's done that yet. No, I think it's more a matter of if she has just decided not to pick up the oh, phone, okay, yeah. maybe she will understand that this is serious and the police are actually looking for her now. 
the friends she was meant to stay with, they start driving south to see if they can maybe spot her car, you know, maybe she was in an accident, and some of these roads, they're not very trafficked, so it's, you know, they're worried that something might have happened to her and she's stranded in need of help. Meanwhile, the police start tracking her phone, and they manage to locate it in an area just outside of Yelevare, which would put her about 120 kilometers from her final destination, that's approximately 75 miles. Yeah. That was really quick conversions there. Thank you. <laughs> um, at 4 p.m. the same day, police in the area are asked to go search the place where they've managed to track her phone. Turns out it's this pretty well-known rest stop that is called Stianbrun, uh, which translates to the stone bridge because that's exactly what it is. It's, <laughs> there's a stone bridge. So by the stone bridge, the police find her car parked at the side of the road. It's the blue Ford Focus in perfect shape and no Caroline in sight. The police put a note on her car window asking that she please contact them should she return to the vehicle. An officer peeks into the car on the passenger seat and she sees a bottle of coke and an open bag of chips. She said it looked like she just stopped there to pee and she was coming back any second. So shortly after this, police canines canines are brought into the area to search. And then around 7 in the evening, a locksmith arrives to unlock the car. On the passenger seat, they find Caroline's cell phone, sort of wrapped in her jacket. In the car, they also find shopping bags with newly purchased clothing, a purse, and receipts. Nightfall comes, and still no one has seen Caroline. The following morning, the area has been closed off, reporters are everywhere, and a huge search party is going through the area in hopes of finding anything that will indicate to what has happened to Caroline. They find nothing. Divers find nothing. Dogs find nothing. Helicopters with heat cameras find nothing. They search sewers and swamps. There's not a single trace. Police know that this is bad news. Caroline is this happy, outgoing person on her way to the interview of her dream job. She has no history of mental illness, no history of drug use. There is nothing that indicates that she has gone missing by her own free will or through her own actions. Not only that, but Caroline has a degree in wilderness survival. Oh, shit, that's cool. And has done a number of challenging hikes in the Swedish nature throughout her life. So on the off chance that she had actually gotten lost in the woods, the police would not be staring into what seems like she just vanished into thin air. She would have done some sort of effort to, you know, notify other people of where she was. What seems to be their primary theory at this stage, though, is that Caroline's disappearance is connected to geocaching. Do you know what that is? I've heard of it. For those who don't know what geocaching is, it's basically like this worldwide collaborative treasure hunt for adults, where you get coordinates for different caches or treasure online. (laughs) And then go looking for them. Well, this still doesn't quite make sense, even though this is something that Caroline is interested in and has taken part in. She's an avid outdoors person, and orientation with map reading is something that she's very comfortable with. This is when the missing persons report is instead relabeled as a suspected abduction case. At this point, the whole country has been informed of this bright young girl having disappeared from a rest stop in what seems like the calmest place in the country. Her face is printed on the front of every newspaper. She's mentioned in every news announcement from both TV and radio. And the people of Norrbotten are scratching their heads because this kind of thing simply does not happen there. Police request any accounts of sightings around the Stone Bridge on the 11th, 12th, and 13th, and piles of tips flood in. Of course, most of them insignificant, but people really do want to help. One of the now over 500 tips the police has is that of a hunter on his way back from a day of hunting. 
The man says that he passed the rest stop on the same evening Caroline went missing, and on a small secluded forest road close to the rest stop, he spots a blue Volvo standing still. As he passes, the Volvo speeds on and turns out of there. Another person says she passed the rest stop late that same night, and she had reacted to this blue car standing, seemingly abandoned, but lit up and with the trunk open. So as if someone had just, you know, left the car open but was intending to come back. Mm-hmm. So, 10 days pass, and still, nothing is turned up. At this point, police decide to do another search of the area. Thing is, not counting the sometimes odd behaviors of murderers, places like these are often very unpredictable to search. There are tons of animals who move through and within the closed-off areas, and the elements are very strong in that mires can completely dry up, revealing things that were once covered by water. The weather can move things around, not to mention smells and how they curate. So they do another canine search with all the town's canines present. Canines! I didn't even know the reference. There is none. I just love dogs. Oh, I thought there was like a ref to, oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Canines! Canines! (laughs) (laughs) This search still doesn't turn up anything though. So now the police need to reconsider whether or not Caroline was ever even at the rest stop. There are no witnesses to confirm her being there and not one trace except her very transportable car. Several weeks have now gone by, and it's starting to get cold. Soon, the snow will start to fall, and if there is a body out there that they're looking for, which they're now fairly certain that that's the case, it's only going to get more difficult from here. At this point, police have spoken to almost 500 people and nothing out of value. But in the pile of tips that they're working through is a valuable piece of information that's going to be key to breaking open this entire case. (coughs) The tip had come in just the day after Caroline had got missing from this elderly couple returning home after having been out fishing in the area by a rest stop called the 58. So they had barely driven 10 meters out of there before the very murderino sounding old lady spots something up ahead on the road. She asks her husband to watch out and they drive up on the side of what they soon realize is a fairly large amount of blood. In the blood, they also see what appears to be two large chunks of brain matter. They stop and look for a long while, assuming that they will find a sign of a wounded animal nearby, but they see nothing. Later that same evening, they see on CFAX that a woman has gone missing in the area, and they both get a very bad feeling about what they had encountered on the 58 just a few hours earlier. They decide that they're going to report their findings to the police on Monday, Caroline having gone missing on the Saturday. But before going down to the station, they return to the 58, and by this time, it's all gone. All that is left is a dark stain on the ground. They still report what they saw to police, and no one had understood the significance of it. How could they not understand the significance of it? I think because, for one, the yearly moose hunt is going on. Oh my god. The yearly moose hunt? I'm sorry, this- (laughs) Speaking the fashion, y'all. Just let me be where I'm from. I love it, though. I don't have- I don't have anything like- we have fish in Gothenburg. Yeah, I mean, say what you want about hunting, but it's definitely something that, you know, colors the area. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. So, you know, you have a lot of animals being killed, and then there's, you know, sometimes there are incidents where someone gets hit by a car, etc. So I think also they might have pointed out that it was now gone, because, Mm. you know, that's that's animals doing most of that work, which might have kind of put a damper on the report and the significance of it. 16 days later, the police searched the area that the couple had referred them to by the 58, and they find this bone fragment underneath what looks like someone has like spread out some sand, and three heavy blood stains of what later is confirmed as human blood. 
A little ways from the area, closer to the road, they also find a black rubber glove, cut-up pants drenched in diesel fuel, and 16 shell casings belonging to three different caliber weapons. Three different? Yeah. As the police bring in a search dog, canines! Uff, uff. To look through the area around the 58, he takes them to a ravine 100 meters away from the road. There they find a mat from the trunk of a car, covered in blood. So now, some pretty intense dog days, no pun intended, lay ahead for Officer Hans-Olof Landström, who gets tasked with the job of trying to find out where the mat could possibly have come from. So he measures and photographs the mat, and then sends the pictures off to a car company that creates that exact type of mat. They confirmed that it is indeed one of theirs, and now he knows what make and model of car those mats go in. So now he knows that in all of Norrbotten there are 2,300 vehicles of this kind, and 83 of these are in Gällivare. So now the police mobilize different groups to go through each one of these 83 cars, locate the owners, and then sitting them down for a talk. hans of Landström and his colleague of almost 40 years, Jon Niva, get five cars to start with. The first one is a dud. It's been unregistered and not driven for years. The second one was also unregistered and rendered useless for years. But the third one ends up being the jackpot. Ends up being the jackpot. <laughs> so they locate the owner of the third car on the list. A man in his 50s, a father of two children living at home and one grown-up son from a previous relationship. They give him a call, tell him of their errand, because don't forget, they've only scratched off two out of a list of 83 cars. Exactly! So really, they expect nothing to come out of this. And then they set up a meeting for the next day on Monday. However, there's something that makes Yonniva's police antennas buzz. He felt there was something strange about the call. As the meeting draws closer, the man they now know by the name of Tony Aldean calls up Officer Niva and asks if perhaps they could push forward the conversation as he's at home by himself with his children. Niva gives him an okay to this, but they decide that no matter the meeting, he will be dropping off his car at the police station by Thursday for forensic testing. He keeps his word on this, turns over the car, they take a swab from him and ask if maybe they can go upstairs and talk right now. Tony goes with Officer Niva, who's by himself at this point, in his office, and they're just talking casually about who he is, what he does for a living, basically small talking to cradle him in a little bit. Tony appears to be completely calm throughout. They ask him some questions regarding his whereabouts on September 12th, talk a little bit with him regarding the case. During this conversation, Tony finds it suitable to bring up the fact that he has recently rebuilt the trunk of his car that forensics are currently doing analysis on, including replacing the mat from the trunk that he claims was damaged when he transported this heavy firewood cleaver just a while back that broke the flooring of the trunk and everything. So I don't know if um, the investigators were a little bit insecure whether or not the information on the mat having been found had hit the newspapers yet. So it's possible that he read the newspapers and figured that this is something that I need to bring up or he's just being plain dumb and deciding that, by the way, <laughs> yeah. I just rebuilt my trunk. So. Niva's guts are basically screaming at him at this point that something is off with this guy. Tony brings up the fact that he has left the old car mat up by his cabin an hour away from where he lives, and mentions that he will gladly take them there to show them the old mat. Both investigators clearly find this odd, that he's so keen on showing them this old car mat without them having pushed for him to turn up any evidence at all. They soon decide to take Tony up on his offer, and they put him in a car with them to drive up to this cabin of his. The whole way there, he's chatting away casually, warning them to drive carefully as this area is riddled with moose. Moose! <laughs> and talking about the hunting he sometimes does in the area. It has been a month since Caroline disappeared. 
Tony is perfectly calm in the car, almost as if he's been practicing for this very moment. As they arrive to the cabin, they look around for a while until Tony shows up with the mat he so gladly wanted to show that he still had. Later on, they find out that this isn't at all the original mat for the car, and through his work, he had actually ordered a couple of meters of rubber mat where he had cut two individual mats. One had been installed in the trunk of his car, and one he's at this moment holding up to the two investigators like a gilded token of his innocence. Neva recollects how he at this moment is pretty desperate to speak one-on-one -on -one with his partner Landström, but in the position that they're in, there's simply no way for them to separate themselves from Tony and discuss how to proceed. Both investigators are now certain that the man in front of them knows a lot more than he is leading on. They drive home, drop Tony off at his house. At this point, forensics are done processing the car and their findings are only going to confirm what Niva and Landstrom already are certain of. In the trunk of the car, they find animal blood. But besides animal blood, they find a long strand of hair and human blood both in the trunk of the car as well as in the passenger seat. This is when Tony LDN is placed under arrest. Yes. Uh, so this is striking to many of Tony's friends and family. Many people describe him as the sensitive, soft-mannered guy. He would sometimes break down crying on occasion after drinking a bit too much. Like, Doesn't that say something? <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, the culture up north is very, you know, among men, you're supposed to be strong and silent. And this is something that a lot of people react to, that he's very sensitive and, and soft and, you know... I mean, it's not a good sign when anyone starts crying in public after a few drinks. <laughs> True. He had no prior arrests, no history of violence, never laid a finger on neither his wife nor kids. People in his hunting team actually laugh when they hear that he's been apprehended because they truly feel that the police is making the dumbest mistake of their careers. At the time of his arrest, they also confiscate his four hunting rifles. His wife, who's on this international business trip as all this is going down, later reports that when she had heard that the police were looking for cars of the very exact same model that her husband drove, she had made this joke to him that, you know, he better be careful so the police doesn't come and get him. And she remembers that, you know, when she said that joke, he had had no reaction at all, just been silent. The investigators are at this point just waiting for a confession. They know that this type of criminal usually cracks under the pressure from their fear of going to prison. So Officer Niva and Officer Landström start pressing him harder. When asked to produce an alibi, Tony says that he's been out with his hunting team by the time Caroline goes missing. He however mentions that he had to interrupt his own hunting early after he fell into a stream and had to go home to change clothes. Landström doesn't believe this statement for a second. He says that in early September, most of the water in those forests have dried up during summer, and Tony claims that he had been soaked all the way to his armpits. He also can't explain why he was crossing the stream in the first place. Tony says that throughout the day, he has placed two phone calls to the leader of his hunting team, one early on to inform him that he's showed up for the day, and one at three in the afternoon to inform him that he's leaving early because he fell in the stream. But according to the call log, the last phone call was placed five hours earlier, being around 10 in the morning, which is quite a significant difference in time. At this point, Tony doesn't know yet that the interrogators have found out that the blood found in his trunk is in fact human. Now, it really only seems like Tony is buying time. So the investigators tell him, the blood in the car, we didn't tell you earlier, it's human blood. Tony just responds, it can't be. 
The officers now find out that the blood found in Tony's car is in fact a match to Caroline's DNA. Apart from the trunk mat, they've now also found a piece of bloody industrial plastic wrap in the area of Tony's cabin, but Tony keeps denying that he has anything to do with their disappearance. Two days after his arrest, Tony attempts suicide in his cell with a razor blade. After this, he tells the officers that he's been lying to protect his family, and now he wants to come clean and tell them what actually happened. So, Tony tells his version of events, and this is mainly what he's going to stick to through the trial hearings. He says he went home from the hunting trip, driving with a trailer attached to his car. He says he stops at the stone bridge to throw out some trash. This is where he first sees Caroline as he drives past her. When he gets out of his car to throw the trash bags out, he claims she yells to him something to the effect of, and this is obviously like an improvised translation, how the hell do you drive, old fuck? He claims that this upset him so much that he pushes her, and then turns away to throw away the bags. When he turns back around, he says that Caroline is lying lifeless between his car and his trailer. Panicked, he puts her body into the trunk of his car, and just drives around for hours not knowing what the fuck to do. He says that at one point, he actually drives off the road into a ditch, and a couple help him get his car back up, while Caroline is still in the trunk. Later that night, he drives up to his cabin where he leaves this trailer. He then drives to the 58, remember? Blood and brain matter. Exactly. That's not what you get from being pushed. There he claims that he takes out a hammer from his car and he beats her over the head with it. Wait, so he changed his story now because there was blood. Or wait. I think that he needed a reason to defend the fact that there is going to be found some... B-b-b-brain matter. That, but also some repeated blunt force trauma to the head. That doesn't simply happen from falling and hitting your head on the trailer. No. So... According to him, this is a humane act to make sure that she was dead. He claims, however, that he's certain that she was already dead by this point. She hasn't moved ever since he put her in this trunk, but he hasn't called an ambulance and he hasn't checked her pulse or breathing. He says that the day after this, he wakes up with a bottle of whiskey next to him, his clothing and shoes gone, and the car cleaned. He claims he went looking for her at this point, but fails to find her. And he tells the investigators that he in fact has no memory of where he put the body. Bullshit. Yeah, there are levels there that, yeah. So, this is October in Norbottom. They're experiencing heavy snowfall any day now, so they know they need to find her, like yesterday. Tony directs them towards this little village nearby, where he says for them to search. He says that this is where he thinks he put her. So they bring out the whole shebang. Three helicopters, canines, woof woof, everything. But they find nothing. He points out several other spots for them to search, and they bring him along for several searches, and still nothing. Now, Niva and Landström know now that he's really just trying to buy time, grasping desperately at straws to try and come up with something that will get himself out of the situation. They're starting to consider that perhaps Tony's adult son has something to do with this, since nothing about Tony's motive seems to make sense, because maybe he's actually covering for his son. Now his son is 25 years old, which would put him closer to Caroline in age, and maybe there's a chance that they can find a connection between the two, since they haven't found anything that points to Tony and Caroline being anything but perfect strangers. So they take his son in for questioning, while in a different room, Tony's interrogation is still going on. Now, things are getting dicey, because Tony's son cannot come up with an alibi for the day that Caroline went missing. So now they're thinking, maybe he's been protecting his son all along. 
While they still believe that Tony is their guy, they can't ignore this possibility. Now they relay this information to Tony and they tell him to basically get your damn act together or else they might have to arrest his son as well. But he doesn't believe them. He thinks they might be manipulating him, bluffing him to get him to confess. It's not until he gets to talk to his son on the phone where he promises that that is the only thing that is going to happen, confirming the son is in fact being interrogated and not a word about anything else. But of course, he breaks this promise and tells his son that the officers have threatened to arrest him. They break off the call and Lundstrom cusses him out. But now at least, Tony understands that this is actually serious and this is happening. Investigator Lundstrom leaves the room and Tony falls silent. After a while, he starts crying and asks for a map. Oh my god, he needs to chill with the crying. He is sweating bullets at this point. Like, he oh, is yeah. terrified. He's crying and asking for a map. I can only assume the map will be used for one thing. Now they are pointed to a new area. And as he relays this information, he also changes his story. Mm. He says he never actually beat Caroline with a hammer, but he shot her on the 58 rest stop. That sounds much more plausible. He still claims that she was already dead at this point. That does not sound plausible. <laughs> now in the new search, they managed to find a bullet lodged into the ground. And the body, according to Tony, is located 100 kilometers south. That's 62 miles, by the way. So they go there. And Niva is certain that this is when they will find her. And find her they do. A little ways into the forest, they find the decomposing, burnt body of Caroline Stambaugh. There's a horrifying amount of damage to the body, both through the burning and also just nature. And there's nothing at first glance that they can actually identify her on. Still though, they know that this is her. I mean... Yeah, X marks the spot. Exactly. And forensics do an incredible job both identifying her and going through the cause of death. Now, they find out that Caroline has in fact been shot twice. Once in the back, and once in the head. Fuck the back. The headshot is at a 45 degree angle above the ear. They also find that she has sustained heavy injuries through repeated blunt force trauma to the head. So the story Tony has been telling about her falling doesn't make sense. He also points to an area where he had kept the body for a few days, where he burned it with gasoline, and as they find this area, they confirm that there is heavy burning on the surroundings. After this, he had moved the body one last time to where they now found her. He's way too chill with transporting bodies, man. I know, but you know, he's also a hunter, so he know. knows to deal with dead things. Yeah, but this is a dead woman. Yeah. In the same area as the burning, they also find Caroline's sock. And a couple meters away, they find a ripped bra hanging from a tree, drenched in diesel fuel. Rem hanging from a tree? Yeah. Remember the rubber glove that they found along with the car mat? Yeah. Well, the DNA comes back as belonging to one of Tony's colleagues. They understand now that he has gone through a lot of work to confuse the police. The shell casings they found on the 58, you know, the ones that came from three different weapons, yeah. were probably all gathered at a shooting ring. He had changed the tires of his car, gotten rid of tires that weren't nearly worn out. He had planted the animal blood in his trunk. He's basically gone through a lot of work to confuse police and put him on the wrong track. Yeah. So what really happened? Well, Tona's defense will remain that you cannot kill a person who's already dead. Yeah. And that Caroline died from an accident. And though they can put him away from... The translation I got for this was Violation of the Grim Peace, which, girl, podcast name. Violation of the Grim Peace? Yep. <gasps> Basically, this just means, like, violating, disposing of, or moving a body. Oh, 
So, for example, if you kill someone, but I dispose of the body, you can't frame me for murder, but you can frame me for violation of the grim Yeah, piece. it's mishandling of... Oh, I can't not remember what it's called in English. Yeah, me neither. So, his hunting team confirms that he had, in fact, ended the hunt early on the day of Caroline's disappearance, and that on the next day, when they were to hunt again, he shows up acting perfectly normal. He does, however, leave early yet again, claiming that he lost his wallet, and he needs to go find it. Interesting. Here's another really interesting part, because everything points to this being a crime of opportunity, but... One of his hunting teammates tells the story of a week before Caroline's disappearance. They had gone out to kind of test shoot their weapons just to make sure that everything ran smoothly and okay. Uh, So they go to the shooting range and he just fires off an entire magazine of bullets just straight into the hillside. And then he just walks around kind of feeling badass. And everyone just found this completely ridiculous and, and so odd. Because he's a routine hunter, and he just all of a sudden felt like they'd never seen anything like this before. Never. And in Sweden, you need a hunting license to hunt. Oh, yeah. Which means that you have studied ballistics, studied all kinds of different things regarding weapons, and you know a lot about weapons, but you also know how to be respectful and responsible with a weapon. How old was Tony? He was like 40-something, right? He was 51. 51. You know, my dad hunts. And for example, you, you know, he has guns in the house. But those guns have to be locked away in a weapon cabinet. Yeah. Sort of like this massive safe. If, for example, we would have a visit from a police officer and those guns were not in the safe, he could actually be charged for a crime because you're not allowed to have your guns just out and about. The way it should be. Yeah. In trial, the defense is doing everything that they can for a sentence to be reduced to involuntary homicide. But the prosecution is incredibly skeptic. Tony claims to have no recollection of shooting her, but obviously remembers big parts of the cleanup, so things are not adding up. They also don't understand how someone as physically fit as Caroline wouldn't catch herself if she fell. Yeah. I was thinking if that was the case, if she had like some medical thing that might have made her like dizzy or off balance or something. I mean... Okay, I want to see, I want to hear what happens, and then I'll come with my... Well, another thing I find really interesting is that at trial, her sister says that what Tony claims that she has said to him, you know, the thing about old fuck, like yeah. how the fuck do you drive? She's like, she would never say that. She would never cuss. Because apparently, she said throughout her entire life, she has never heard Caroline curse once. And she talked about this one time where Caroline had gone to the movies and she had seen this movie, Mons Jävla, which in Swedish, the title includes a curse word. And she had like a hard time saying the title of the movie. Mm-hmm. Like she did not use that kind of language. So when he claims that she has said this to him, she's just like, that's made up. You made that up. She would never say that. Interesting. I thought so too. Because that didn't happen if she didn't quote unquote provoke him. Then she might have just, like, taken a pouse on this, like, rest stop to eat the snack she had. Or, or just to pee. I think she just, just went to pee. Yeah, just to pee. And she comes across him. I'm sensing that he might have shot her from behind as the first and then the execution shot in the head. Well, here's what the most likely theory is. And you're not far off. Thank uh. you. <laughs> <laughs> now Tony's alcoholism is coming to light. They find out that in the month of September, Tony had purchased nine bottles of whiskey. So he's drinking a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. 
So it's likely that Tony has actually been driving somewhat under the influence at the time he encounters Caroline. They meet at this rest stop and she confronts him on this. That he might have been driving erratically. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the alcoholism is, you know, Tony's dirty dirty little secret no one knows anything about it up until the trial and no one had ever suspected anything so he probably freaks out and gets angry when perhaps she alludes to calling the police yeah or just saying have you been drinking i think and so does leif give a passion who is one of Sweden's lead pro- criminologists. Lead criminologists and also very outspoken media person. He he shows up a lot on TV. He has a lot of opinions. And he voices he- those opinions. <laughs> well, he's actually, he's a really talented criminologist. He knows his shit, yeah. So he thinks, and I think that this is exactly what happened too, that at this point he hits her and he hits her bad because he doesn't like her confronting him on this issue. Because remember, this is his secret. He doesn't want anyone to ever find out or know. She's unconscious. He panics, loads her into his car. When she regains consciousness, he obviously has upped the ante by about 110%. And one can only assume that Caroline is freaking the fuck out when she wakes up in his trunk. So this is most likely when he shoots and kills her. Did he shoot and kill her while she was in the trunk? I believe that he opens the trunk to check what the fuck he just did just to look at her is she dead Mm -hmm. and i think that she runs off like she gets out and she runs for the fucking hills and he shoots in the back then exactly he had to have had the gun on him when he opened that trunk yes but i don't think he was prepared to shoot her as soon as he Uh, opened it more like i think he had it on him that's his safety exactly yeah i think he had it on him but he had to kind of get into position to actually use it Mm -hmm. so he knows that if she lives she's gonna go to the police and he can't have that happen because he's already messed himself up into a lot of other layers there as well yes the forensic evidence is pointing to her having been shot in the back while standing up falling to the ground and then by the evidence on the ground of the scene it looks like she's been crawling for just a couple of seconds trying to get away oh no that is awful And remember that he has a hunting rifle. These things are incredibly high caliber. They're meant to take down a moose. Yeah. They're really, really heavy. And this is where, remember that she was shot in the head from behind the ear at a 45 degree angle? Yeah, there was no head left. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So this is most likely what happened, that he runs after her. She's on her knees, crawling, and he shoots her the killing blow in the back of the head. The thing is, she would have most likely died from the wound to the back as well than if it's a hunting rifle. Oh, of course. Yeah, Yeah, she was crawling out of there and and she would have died shortly after. But that, like, fight in her, the fact that she was still crawling. Yeah. The defense is completely aimed towards creating this idea that if you cannot fully confirm that Caroline wasn't already dead by the time she was shot, then they cannot get him for murder for the simple reason that you cannot kill someone who is already dead. So they're really just kind of grasping at anything to reduce yeah, a sentence. Yeah, it's pretty much that then. Another theory the prosecution brings up is that the chance of there being a sexual motivation to the case, you know, having found the bra and also her... Um, This is harsh. Uh, How do I say this? The burning of the body was particularly intense around the genitalia. Oh, fuck. So Tony claims that he had absolutely no sexual motivation. Oh, fuck. It's just if he tried to rape her, if he raped her... There's absolutely no evidence left. Not not only for the fact that she's been burnt, but also for the fact that she's been it's, out. Yeah, it's decomposition there. It's just... I actually accidentally stumbled upon 
some crime scene photos it was actually completely accidental um, and i mean i'm not going to describe what i saw but no, you can describe it i mean there was i saw the ribs you know yeah. you could see the rib cage there was definitely like flesh there but there was no skin you know yeah and that's when sort of the human aspect becomes animalistic it's like finding it it's like finding a rotting carcass yeah exactly well tony says that the reason why he burned her below the the waist is because he didn't want to burn her face because that felt more you know inhumane i guess but he he blew her face off yeah yeah that sounds more of a sex that sounds really sexually motivated in that sense the thing is, if you think about how a body is built, and if you think about how many other areas you can ignite, the only argument is that the genitalia is in the middle of the body, but the stomach area is a better area in that case to start like burning. Yeah, I wonder how much of the focus was there, because if it wasn't sexually motivated, it it's feels still incredibly very, odd. It's very, very odd. Yeah, that's very odd. Also, the fact that he didn't burn the bra. Or did he burn the bra? Or was no, He it doused was... it in fluid, but he didn't burn it, which is very weird. Exactly. But, but I don't know. I think that a lot of those things was to try to um, put the police off his track. By making it a, a, like a fake sexually motivated crime? Mm, I can't tell. I don't want to give this guy too much credit either. But at the same time, he had worked really hard. Like, he had thought about a lot of things, you know, putting out these shell casings. He had planned for there maybe being a shooting of weapons to see where to test ballistics. Like, he had gone through a lot of different steps that the police never even had to get to just to cover his tracks. Yeah, that's true. Well, he gets life in prison. He's caught for her murder. How does life in prison in Sweden? Is it life? It's not life. Yeah. It's not life. That's true. Life in Sweden usually means 21 years. So, and how old was she? She was 29. Yeah. It's disgusting. It's really disgusting. And there's there's just so many holes in the story as to what could possibly have happened on that day. If she fell so bad on the stone bridge that she died, why didn't they find any signs of her ever being there? Like, why is her car there? There's nothing. They've searched that specific area so many times. They've never found anything of value apart from her car at the stone bridge. No witnesses could place neither her nor him on the stone bridge during the time he must have been there. It's just so odd. Well, I really wanted to have a good ending to this, but really it just seems like there's simply no logic to this case. No, and he does not sound like the guy who's going to admit to exactly what happened either. There's no pattern, there's no statistics or anything that can actually explain this behavior. It really seems like Caroline was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. But at least in some cases, when you have these killers who kill for the first time, there's at least some, you know, violence in the past. Yeah, and I, I hate the term just snapped as well. Yeah. I hate that term because it really minimizes the entire act. Oh, he just snapped and killed her. Yeah, like... No, it, no, no, no. Because, it's, because it alludes to possession, that something overtakes you. Oh, yeah, 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 that's true. That you're not really responsible for your actions. What's well, the momentary, momentary insanity? Exactly. Argument. I wonder then what... If he... I want to see, like, his computer searches... I think that he had no plan on doing this. But I don't if think... he did in any way sexually assault her before or after death, 
then there sh- it feels like there should be a secret life somewhere or if it's just been mounting up okay so i'm never going to get this i'm never get this moment again so i'm just going to do it i think that he really got caught in this web of lies and his own actions being so erratic and him just making it worse and worse and worse the more he went on I think it was an accident. An accident that he caused by being violent and by him being under the influence of alcohol. Yeah. And under the influence of the shame and terror of being found out as an alcoholic. Because these are prideful men. Very. Up, uh, up north. Mm-hmm. Especially you want to seem as you have control. Like loss of control is something that is very much looked down upon. And alcoholism is pretty much exactly that. You don't have control. So Leif, you the passion again. <laughs> Please bring him back into the story. Well, he says that, you know, the unlikeliness of this case is extraordinary. Nine times out of ten, it is someone the victim knows. Someone they've at least met before, or some component of at least having violent tendencies in the past. But with cases like these, you become humbled as an investigator. Because it really is nine times out of ten, and not ten times out of ten. You always need to pay attention to that one percent chance. Yeah, I mean, that 1% chance is that he, I mean, he has a brain tumor and this, it just exploded in his brain and this is what happened. I mean, or he got spooked and he started hallucinating and there were technically anything could have happened. Anything. The amount of versions that he has told about the case does hint at him lying in order to save his own ass. Yes. So... I really hope that there is a chance that we find out what happened one day, but I don't think it will. This was 2008. Yeah. So it's 10, almost 11 years ago. Yeah. Okay, well, I would actually really love to discuss this case longer. We've gone on for so long, though. I think this episode is going to be two episodes. (laughs) We're sleepy now. Yes. We're sleepy now. Well, you guys, to high winds and mermaids, and may you live for as long as you want, We're only here for a short time, so make sure to live and not fear. Thank you for listening, guys. Bye.